Impact over intentions. A faculty member told me I was brave for admitting I was the first in my family to go to college. I don't understand Freeze why in common. I spent my whole life having to ask permission to celebrate my holidays. As a college student, I often felt that I needed to justify how religious I was in order to have the luxury to have the day off on my major holidays, something that no one is expected to do for majority group holidays. Invisible like and nebulous. When the moving truck showed up at our new home in Davidson, an older white woman with a child in a stroller stopped, waited for us to come back outside from inside the house, and barked at us without so much as a simple hello, moving out or moving in. I have so control over when my class does and doesn't meet, but in class, my job becomes harder for I had a professor say that she could tell English wasn't my first language from my essay. A black man walked into our campus office. Another student working for to him and said, are you the new football coach? You could see on his face he just wanted to sigh. He said, no, I'm a new professor. Today, we were made aware of our hypervisibility and undesirability. We are here to put the microscope to the microphone with our podcast. So let's talk about microaggressions. The term microaggressions was first coined by African-American psychiatrist and Harvard professor Chester Middlebrook Pierce, who defined microaggressions as the subtle, standing, and often automatic and nonverbal put-downs directed towards people of color, often unconsciously. According to Daryl Wing Sue and Lisa Beth Sponierman in the 2020 second edition of their book, Microaggressions in Everyday Life, while early theorizing focused solely on racial microaggressions, they can be expressed toward any marginalized group member and are typically linked to racism, sexism, genderism, heterosexism, classism, and ableism. The study of microaggressions has expanded recently to include other forms of oppression and accompanying microaggressions such as trans, gender, queer, religious, and intersectional microaggressions. Micro refers to the interpersonal, micro-level context of the act, and aggressions refers to the insults, invalidations, and assaults that may manifest as verbal or nonverbal behaviors that cause indirect, social, and relational forms of harm, such as exclusion with or without intentions to do so. I once overheard a conversation in which a white man wondered aloud about the role and place of white men in academia as the future unfolds. I thought to myself, seriously? You are not a minority or an endangered species. You are not outnumbered or even close to being outnumbered. You still make upwards of 70% of the professoriate. Not only that, but whiteness is embedded in our systems and institutions. It's so normalized that you don't even see it. Microaggressions are verbal and nonverbal interpersonal exchanges in which a perpetrator causes harm to a target, whether intended or unintended. These brief and commonplace indignities communicate hostile, derogatory, and negative slights to the target. Microaggressions value the target's perception and identifying harm, as perpetrators often are unaware that they've engaged in an exchange that demeans the target. Impact over intentions. So let's get started. My name is Misha LaCourt. I'm a rising junior GSS and philosophy double major and a collaborator of the Davidson Microaggressions Project since fall of 2019. I'm Julia Lau and I'm a rising sophomore. I intend to double major in economics and psychology and I have been a collaborator of the Davidson Microaggressions Project since the spring of 2020. So earlier this week, we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Katie Horowitz and Dr. Melissa Gonzalez, both GSS professors at Davidson. They gave us tons of valuable input on microaggressions in the realm of GSS, focusing on respecting pronouns and gender identity. 
All right, so Dr. Horowitz and Dr. Gonzalez, if you want to introduce yourselves and then tell us your educational path and how it's brought you to the field of gender and sexuality studies and where you are today. So I'm Katie Horowitz. I am an assistant professor of gender and sexuality studies and writing at Davidson. And my path to gender and sexuality studies, in some sense, I would say that I was raised to do this work. My mother is a dyed-in-the-wool feminist, and I grew up around sort of feminist discourses and gay discourses. When I was in college, I went to Wesleyan, which at the time at least was considered like a notoriously queer space to be in. And then when I went to grad school, I initially, well, when I was in college, I majored in French and dance, which are two things that sadly have not continued much with. But when I was looking to go back to grad school, I knew that I wanted to be a professor and I knew that I wanted to do something with interdisciplinary humanities. So I applied to different interdisciplinary humanities programs and ended up at Rhetoric in Berkeley. And I started off, oddly enough, as a British historian. I took this class that was taught by a British historian that I loved, and that was what I was going to do. But as it turned out, I wasn't actually that into British history. Mostly what I wanted to do was go to drag shows and talk about drag shows. And a good friend of mine who's in grad school with me one night out of many nights that we had sort of sat in her car after a drag show for hours and hours on end talking about drag. She said to me, hey, I noticed that you don't actually go to any of the British history reading group meetings or the British history conference. You don't actually seem to be interested in British history at all. But what you are really interested in is performance and gender and sexuality. So why aren't you working on that instead? And I guess that was something I had been aware of, but I needed someone to give me the permission to say that that was something I could actually pursue academically. And so from there, I started taking more classes in performance studies, ended up writing my dissertation about drag kings and drag queens in Ohio, which is now a book called Drag Inner Performance and the Trouble with Queerness, which came out about six or eight months ago. And that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. Thank you, Katie. I may have never known or may have forgotten the British historian bit, so I'm excited that I learned or got to remember a new detail. That's hilarious. Okay, so unlike Katie, I would say that I was definitely not raised in a, in a feminist household or to be a feminist, but I remember always being really interested in a lot of the ethical issues that are integral to feminist politics as a child and young adolescent growing up in Miami, Florida. When I got to college, I, I went to college at Columbia and I was an English major. And I think that the interest that ultimately led to me focusing more of my studies on gender and sexuality was just like an enduring interest in how power really works. And I was always seeking a sort of ethics that would resonate with me. And this manifested, I think, in college 
in my interest in writing an honors thesis about a little known Cuban, Cuban American writer, unexpectedly named Calvert Casey, who was kind of an exile, very queer, and had a lot of complications in terms of his biography and his experience of life that he explored in his writing in terms of his bilingualism. And I was really interested in like when he chose to write in English versus when he chose to write in Spanish. And so thinking about the intersections of how he represented language in relation to sexuality got me on that train. And I got into a PhD program also at Columbia, but in the Latin American and Iberian cultures department, formerly known as the Spanish and Portuguese department. And in grad school, I was taking all sorts of different Latin American cultural studies courses, but it was a queer theory course that finally illuminated for me a theory of how power works that I found deeply convincing and satisfying and intriguing and worth thinking about for a really long time, forever, for a lifetime, really. And I also found in in feminist and queer theory, like different ethics that really resonated with me centered on radical respect for autonomy at the same time that there's a reckoning with all the ways that we're disciplined and live in a society of control where control and discipline function in decentralized ways and like an ethics about articulating how to live in that bind you know respecting autonomy and acknowledging also the ways that we are already controlled so I decided to do the certificate in feminist scholarship and I got more involved with the Institute for Research on Women and Gender and Sexuality now. They changed the name. It used to be just Institute for Research on Women and Gender. In recent years, they added sexuality. And it's common in a lot of graduate programs across the country that there not be a PhD in feminist gender sexuality studies, but that there be a certificate program where you do additional coursework, additional reading, additional oral exams. The requirements differ from school to school. So I did that. And when I finished my PhD in 2010, I came to Davidson and I was involved within the first couple of years of being here with the creation of the new gender and sexuality studies program with a major and a minor, which replaced a gender studies concentration that had existed in the college for a few years. Thank you both for sharing your personal experiences on what led you to this particular field and where you are right now. So you both teach a wide variety of courses at Davidson in the Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies. Could you tell us some of your favorite classes and provide us a rationale as to why these classes in particular are your favorite? My teaching responsibilities are such that I have only taught GSS 101 twice, and I've taught a class in Spanish about race, gender, and sexuality in Latinx culture that I've taught many times in Spanish, and I really love that class, and I got to teach a cross-listed LAS and GSS class once that I hope a different version of that I will be teaching in the future. GSS 101 is actually my favorite class because it starts with critical questions that everyone really should be asking, but very few people are asking. Although to be fair, there always are a lot of students, at least a little group of students in GSS 101 who have been asking these questions. And it's questions like, what even is gender? 
like what is gender right now? And when you look at it, the history of gender, how does that reveal like the huge, huge ways that experiences and representations of gender have changed? And how does understanding gender and how it's changed and how it's been experienced and how it's been contested and what it means and what it means now and what it meant and how it was experienced in 1950 and how it was represented and understood in 1820 and across history. For me, it's incredibly exciting to have students asking these questions, sometimes for the first time ever, other times asking questions that they've been thinking about that are really important to them, but asking them in new ways, finding new perspectives on them, putting them in conversation, other ideas and experiences that they're learning about across college. That's basically why I love teaching GSS 101. I love talking about how to teach it. I was recently leading a workshop with people interested in teaching 101 and just talking about teaching it is something that I could go on about for many, many hours. So I'll pass it on to Katie. Well, Melissa kind of stole my answer. I was going to oh. <laughs> one one too, because it really is just such a magical classroom experience because you get such a diversity of experience levels with the students in that class. You know, some folks are senior majors who just ended up not taking it until their last semester. And then you also have folks for whom this is something completely new. And in some sense, that's my favorite group of students to work with. All of the ideas they're encountering in GSS 101 are brand new and can be life altering, like the way that Melissa described, you know, queer theory being for sort of finding the answers to these ethical questions that you've been thinking about for so long. I really think it can be a transformative class, but I'll also say I've taught many different electives and I genuinely love all of my classes. I just love teaching about queer studies and about feminism in all of its forms. But one particularly exciting elective for me is sex radicals, which Mishi was in with me last year. And what I love about that class is that we not only read theory and scholarship, but we're also reading the work of activists and organizers of today who were doing the work on the ground. And it's a very different perspective, I think, than one gets in a lot of college courses. And here we could go on a tangent about, you know, what kinds of knowledge are seen as suitable to the academy. I will not go down that rabbit hole. But we then also in Sex Radicals try to apply some of the lessons that we take from activists by staging our own actions on campus, having to do with, you know, whatever the members of any given group of students are interested in. And that's really fun to do, even as it presents a number of challenges and can get kind of thorny. I really enjoy working with students in that sort of hands-on, community-focused way. And 
I just want to add that perhaps the reason that Katie and I both appreciate the fact that GSS 101 brings in such a diversity of student experiences, the thing that happens in GSS 101 is that the feminist pedagogy allows for students to call each other into conversations, teach each other what they know. Everybody knows different things and brings into the classroom different knowledges and that's recognized. So there's a lot of teaching among peers, between peers, and that really works very well in 101 because of the subject matter and because of the explicitly feminist pedagogy. And it brings up productive tension sometimes, working through these tensions and identifying the ways that the embodied experience that we bring, the ways that are the racialized dimensions of our experience, the gender dimensions of our experience, the sexual dimensions of our experience intersect. It's really powerful to have people learning together in a democratic space. So that's, I think, why it's so exciting. And yeah, exactly. The people who are like, wow, I had never thought of that before. The making the familiar strange and the making the strange familiar that happens in one-on-one is just really exciting. And I'm really excited to teach it again. Not next year, but the year after. I'll also say that I learn a lot from students every time I teach 101 and really every time I teach all of my classes because I think that part of feminist pedagogy is about challenging hierarchy and teachers being open to the idea that their students may have things to teach them. And I think that dialectic has made me a better teacher in the sense that I'm better able to articulate the fundamentals of our field, but also it's really challenged some of my beliefs and made me question why I make the assumptions that I do. And it has also, I think, made me a more well-rounded queer and feminist scholar as a white cis person teaching in this field. Since I've become a professor, I have done a lot more focusing on race and class and disability, you know, issues that could have been easy for me to overlook as a member of the majoritarian identity group. And I think a lot of that was instigated for me by interacting with students who challenged me on things like, you know, what do you as an able-bodied person have to say about folks with disabilities? Or what are you as a white feminist doing about issues of racial inequity in the feminist movement? So I think that, you know, not just being a teacher, but being taught is one of the most exciting parts of teaching GSS at Davidson. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that we need to acknowledge, like you just did, also the ways that professors can learn a lot and do learn a lot if they're open to it from the students, from the teaching. And that's also a really magical thing. Thank you for sharing all of that. I just wanted to comment and say that Mishi and I actually took GSS 101 this past spring semester with Dr. Horowitz. And although I personally had some basic knowledge on gender and sexuality, I'm really glad to have explored these issues on an even deeper and academic level and appreciate that these conversations are happening because it's just so important to continue to provide an even more inclusive environment for everyone. So I'm just really glad to hear that this is one of your favorite classes. That's awesome. (laughs) Super happy to hear that. 
I'm curious to know, though, could you talk about how your classes are related to your research interests? So right now I'm working on a different type of project that is a digital project. I have a fellowship, a Mellon New Directions fellowship to pursue coursework, a, a graduate degree in a different area. I'm getting a master's degree in computational media and I'm working on designing and building a digital resource for intersectional Latinx sexual dissidents in the hemisphere, in the Americas. And I actually did teach before doing the fellowship that Latin American Studies GSS cross-listed class that was kind of a phase one version of the project. And that was really exciting to have students meeting activists and thought producers from across the globe and like working with them, working on translations of their work. But more generally, the whole project is about, is centered on acknowledging how social media and other digital spaces are not just spaces where a huge amount of education and learning takes place, but also spaces where new knowledges and theories are produced outside of the systems of the university. And my understanding of that and my appreciation for that is something that I bring to all the classes that I teach, where we look at a really wide variety of texts and trouble what the definition of a text is and think about how different knowledges are validated, made invisible, made unknown or unknowable. And so that's something that really intersects between my research and pretty much every course I teach. For me, I think that the relationship between my teaching and my research is often somewhat cyclical. There are some classes that my research motivates the teaching. So for instance, I had a JEC grant with Dr. Natalie Deckard, who was in sociology at Davidson. She has since moved to a university in Canada, but we had a grant to do some research on women faculty's experiences of gender-based violence in the academy. And so out of that research came a class that I teach in the writing department, actually. It's writing 101 section on Me Too. And so in that case, it was a pretty straightforward research leads to teaching. But what I've found has happened more often than not for me is actually that my teaching leads me to my research. For example, I just wrote a book on drag that I worked on for over a decade. I've never taught about drag. But in my classes, you know, when students have questions or interests that I don't know the answer to or I don't know how to answer very well or that I'm not an expert in. I'll try to do some digging outside of class and that has on many occasions inspired me to then pursue teaching a whole class in that and so becoming more expert in that field, doing the reading and the research in that field. And that's kind of how I have in turn arrived at my second book project, which is on a topic far different from my first book and one that has to do with the ways in which the U.S. state has, during both the Obama and Trump administrations, deployed a rhetoric about familial and romantic love in ways that support the state's benevolence to white folks, straight families, 
middle and upper class folks, able-bodied people, and at the same time, justify the state's withdrawal of resources from people of color, disabled folks, poor and working class folks, queer folks, trans folks. So I guess the long and short of it is that sometimes the research inspires the teaching, but more often that than not for me, the teaching has inspired the research. Great. Thank you both for sharing. It's always great to hear about all of this. So it's sometimes clear how sexism and homophobia play into all of your work. Could you talk also more about how transphobia, racism, and other isms show up into your work? For me, something that I have come to believe deeply in the last 10 or so years and that I wish I had arrived at much sooner is that you can't talk about any ism in isolation. And that's, you know, a fundamental principle of intersectional feminism, right? That none of us on an individual level lead single identity lives. So for me, I don't know what it's like to be a woman for whatever woman means without also being white and able-bodied and having grown up with a good deal of economic privilege. And then on a structural level, you know, systems of oppression all collide with each other and never work in isolation. So it's hard for me to think about how I would even teach a class that's about gender and sexuality without also teaching about race and class and disability. But, you know, if we're talking specifically about transphobia and transgender, you know, I think that's an aspect of gender and sexuality studies that has been neglected for a very long time. And, you know, I think part of that reason is transphobia, right? There were and still are a lot of feminists who don't believe that trans women are women and don't believe that trans men are men and don't want that narrative included in the story of feminism because it unsettles the idea that we know what a woman is and we know what a man is. And on that basis, you know, we can make rights claims and claims for redress. You know, I also want to say that I identify as cisgender. And, you know, to some extent, I feel uncomfortable making claims about trans folks and the importance of these issues to them since I do not lead a transgender life, right? That's not my identity. But I also want to acknowledge that at this time, to my knowledge, we don't have any openly trans faculty at Davidson. And I think that that's, at this point, pretty glaringly obvious omission in terms of faculty diversity, right? I really wish that you could be interviewing a transgender professor of gender studies about this issue. But, you know, since there's not, I'm happy to fill in. But with the caveat that this, you know, isn't my lived experience. A couple of things to touch upon that Katie brought up. I also will echo that in my teaching and in my research, all of these isms, some of them are not technically isms, but you know, racism, homophobia, transphobia, femphobia, they're all 
connected for me and for a majority of practitioners today understand them as connected and essentially inseparable. And they're all related to the charm circle. And the way that Gail Rubin illuminates how we have these unspoken or partially spoken, sometimes implied, sometimes you have to read between the lines, sometimes directly stated, divisions made by our social norms where there are certain behaviors and identities that are in the charmed inner circle of what is considered normal and good in terms of, yes, cisgender is in the inner part of the charmed circle, as well as monogamy, heterosexuality, marriage, able-bodiedness, whiteness. And the outer limits of this circle include those aspects of our human experience that are considered bad, abnormal, damned, right? Like non-heterosexual sexualities, bisexuality, homosexuality, non-white racialized identities, disability, kinky sex as opposed to vanilla sex, non-monogamy. And so understanding the ways that social norms condition human experience and how phobias and isms are, are interconnected and one's experience of fat phobia, for example, is not easily separated from racialization, even if that's not a way that we're accustomed to thinking about it. Sabrina Strings is a sociologist, and she has a very recent book called Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, which I highly recommend. She also had an op-ed in the New York Times recently about why the coronavirus is killing Black Americans at disproportionate rates. And her study demonstrates how anti-fatness, fat phobia, bias against fatness, which is very prevalent in our society in the contemporary moment in new and particular to our moment ways, anti-fatness and fat phobia is rooted in anti-blackness. And she goes through the history of that. So that's a book that could be a great summer read that I recommend. A prevalent issue that we noticed through the anonymous story submissions to the Davidson Microaggressions Project are concerns regarding the usage of pronouns. Could you talk about their importance, how, when, and why to use them? Katie was talking about how there are a number of feminists who believe that trans women are not women and are not interested in some cases in respecting people's pronouns. But I want to point out that I think that that is not a majority of feminists. And I know that it's absolutely not a majority opinion among scholars, uh, researchers of gender and sexuality. There is also a strong tradition of solidarities among feminist and queer groups where there's a lot of solidarity between, for example, butch lesbians and trans men. There are a lot of solidarities between people who experience gender, their gender in non-normative ways. And there are lots of ways that feminists and queer activists and thinkers support really strong solidarities between people who identify as trans, people who identify as non-binary, people who identify as butch lesbians. I just want to signal that that is also a rich area. And I think that those solidarities are particularly strong and present, especially among younger generations of queer feminist thinkers and activists. Okay, pronoun question. The issue of pronouns for me is pretty simple. Using people's pronouns or respecting people's pronouns is 
simply a sign of respect and recognition. And pronouns can be a very important part of how some people experience social recognition. And it can be very painful when people's pronouns are not respected. So very simply, I see respecting people's pronouns using people's pronouns as an important sign of respect and the you know bare minimum basis for building solidarities across our differences. I agree with everything that you said, Melissa. I also want to highlight the fact that you said people's pronouns and not preferred pronouns. Mm-hmm. We've had that linguistic shift. Preference absolutely implies that something is optional, right? Like I prefer coffee, but that doesn't necessarily mean I won't drink tea. In general, folks' pronouns are not simply a preference. It's a requirement. And so to respect the person, you need to use their pronouns, period. I also, you know, wanted to add that one should not assume what someone's pronouns are based on the way that they look. You know, our perception of people's gender may well not be accurate. And so this is why it's become customary in some queer and trans spaces to do pronoun go-rounds and to ask folks what their pronouns are. But something that I've come up against in sort of reading about best practices with pronoun go-rounds is that some folks then feel coerced into outing themselves when they're not ready to, if you make everyone go around and share their pronouns, or the option might be if they're not ready to come out publicly, that they then have to sort of consent to everyone using the pronoun that they had been using. So if there are any other professors out there, what I've come to do this past semester, and that I think worked pretty well, is having everyone in the class make a card with their name on it and whatever that name that they would like to be called in the class, as well as the pronouns they would like used in that class, and they can change it at any time. So it's possible that someone starts off the semester using she, her pronouns, and then at some point changes it to they, them pronouns or he, him pronouns. And it's a way to signal that without the person having to make an announcement to the professor and to the class that they would like their pronouns and or name changed by the group. So just a little teaching practice that others may want to experiment with. Great. And I was going to say those name tags were really helpful and I really like that way of doing it. And I had some people even asking me what's the best way to go about using pronouns in classes. And I always reference using the name cards because I think they're so effective. I want to signal a practice that I know Katie has used before and that is also used increasingly in some queer trans spaces, which is because you can't presume people's gender using they as a way to avoid presuming people's gender until there has been an opportunity for people to share their pronouns. Sometimes using they as a sort of default pronoun is something that I've seen increase and is another thing that can be used sometimes in in classroom spaces. And I think Katie has done that before. I have done it before. Interestingly, I was involved in a thread on some social media platform 
that actually is what led me to do the note cards because I had a number of non-binary folks said that like they didn't think that was a bad practice, but that by using they as the default, they felt that it sort of devalued the fact that they was their pronoun. And so that got me thinking about, oh gosh, well then how, how do we, you know, do harm reduction in this practice? And that's when someone suggested the note cards. So I'm always thinking, rethink these things. I think that's a really good point too, always rethinking it, because I can see how in a space that is predominantly cisgender, that using they as a default can mean different things than it does when you're in a space that is already predominantly queer and trans. Totally. Yeah, thank you for that. So we'll go on to the next question, which is one of the biggest problems that we always hear with microaggression experiences is that it's hard to address them in the moment. So what are some ways that you have responded to microaggressions, both from the perspective of the aggressee and the aggressor? When we commit the microaggression of making a mistake with another person's pronouns, which I certainly have done, which we all have probably done or will do at some time, is to not make a huge deal about it that puts a burden on the other person, but to quickly stop yourself, correct yourself, and apologize. I say, I'm sorry. I use the wrong pronoun, correct, and move forward and avoid any tendency to apologize in a way that makes the discomfort and the harm about your discomfort about making a mistake. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a great example, Melissa. And you know, I think the last part of what you said about decentering yourself is key to responding to any kind of microaggression that you commit. Yeah. Once you become aware of it, humble yourself, acknowledge that you did harm, and then do better next time. But going on and on about it makes it about your own fragility rather than about the harm done to the other person. Exactly. Could you talk about some of the changes in your time at Davidson about diversity and inclusion, such as how conversations have changed or stay the same or just anything in general? So I've been here since 2010 and there have been enormous shifts that are sometimes hard for students to perceive, even when they're instrumental in making the change happen because they're here for four years. Some students certainly do perceive the changes, but looking back over the past 10 years, it's very significant. Part of this shift has to do with, I think, the energy and knowledge that students bring in when they arrive at Davidson and some of the changes in how your generations, particularly when it comes to the intersections of race, gender, and sexuality, and as well as other aspects of social difference like citizenship, immigration status, ability, body, size, class, gender normativity, gender non-normativity. Students are coming in with greater knowledge about the inequalities in our world, different theories of the most ethical way to respond to them, different knowledges about activism. And there's all sorts of things that exist now that didn't exist when I arrived, like SIAD, which is a student-led initiative that is a key part now of all searches for new faculty, for example, and some staff searches, has had a really transformative effect on our hiring practices There are a variety of different programs. Obviously, there are things like the JEC requirement, which has been introduced since I've been here. 
as well as the different grants and the ways that our really brilliant, creative staff, faculty, and students have used these grants to bring different types of thought, art, performance, lectures, symposia, conferences. All of that, I think, has been really fundamental in terms of moving us forward. And we're at a place where the majority of the Davidson College community has an understanding of systemic racism and a belief in the importance of respecting people's pronouns, for example. So these are all things that were not true 10 years ago. Part of that is is about how our world has changed. Part of that is the result of specific and really tiring work by students, faculty, and staff. A lot of them, especially in terms of what we sometimes call diversity and inclusion initiatives led by Black and POC faculty, as well as immigrant faculty, and as well as our students, our undocumented students, our Black and POC students have done amazing work over the past 10 years. And a lot of that work has been led by underrepresented people who study or work at our predominantly white institution. And a lot of change has happened. And I think that right now in this moment, it is a moment where there's new possibilities for working collectively, even more aggressively on acknowledging and also working towards dismantling systemic racism and other forms of oppression and discrimination that are everywhere in higher education and certainly at Davidson as well. Something that I've noticed in the time that I've been here, which has been six years, is that the number of openly queer and trans students seems to have increased pretty dramatically since I arrived. And I think that speaks to some shifts in not only institutional culture, but in the culture of the South more broadly, you know, and that students are more comfortable being out and disclosing their queer and trans identities in a place like Davidson, North Carolina, than they did even five or 10 years ago. Yeah, I totally second that. I recall, especially when I first arrived on campus, and I was like, oh, there's a Latina lesbian faculty, and being invited to the different queer spaces that existed at that time versus now a huge dramatic increase in the openly queer and trans population. Part of that is a demographic shift. We are still getting different forms of data on this, but there are more queer and trans people among younger generations. And in, you know, to really simplify the complexity of why that is, like we live in a world where there are different social possibilities now than there were before. And that's the question that if you want to know more, you can take GSS 101 and 201 and a few upper level courses, and then you'll be able to answer that question. Great, thank you. So it's always great to hear about what has changed, but I think we could all agree there's definitely ways to go. So moving forward, what would you want to see change on campus and how do you think we can enhance our community? Well, I'll give a somewhat self-promotional answer, which is that I've been working on a project with Dean Sarah Buchanan in the Dean of Students office to bring restorative justice practices to Davidson. And restorative justice is responding to any number of harms that one or more people cause to one or more other people. 
And it's a process that involves everyone and the, the harmed party and the party causing harm sit together with facilitators in a circle and get to talk about what the harm was. And the, the person who caused harm takes accountability for what happened and everyone agrees to some specific actions that the person who caused harm can take in order to make amends and to also better themselves and make sure that they don't do what they did again and to restore trust in the community. And this is a practice that originated in indigenous cultures and has been taken up by Black and Indigenous and other folks of color and queer and trans circles in order to reduce reliance on policing and on prisons, which I think is really important, particularly in this moment when all of these cities and small towns, including Davidson all over the country, are rising up in protest in response to the death of George Floyd. So in order to avoid having to call the police when harm is caused, queer and trans communities of color have long arranged these systems of accountability that are internal to the community and then don't require outside policing or reliance on the prison industrial complex. And so Dean Buchanan and I have been looking for ways to use some of these strategies to address issues of student conduct, for instance, like sexual misconduct, drug and alcohol issues, you know, pulling the fire alarm. It can range from minor to major issues. And also to address microaggressions, to address the ways that students interact with each other, students interact with faculty, faculty interact with faculty and staff to really sort of change the culture from one that's oriented toward penalizing people who cause harm to really addressing why someone caused harm and what can be done to prevent them from causing that harm again and to be accountable and make amends to the person or persons that they harmed. And so I think that's, you know, one really important tool we can look to that helps us to build community across differences of identity, differences of worldview, differences of life experience on Davidson's campus going forward. Yeah, I strongly second that. And I think that while a restorative justice framework, a version of which some, especially POC, queer and trans groups, refer to as transformative justice instead of restorative justice, in part responding to the fact that sometimes the restoration implied in restorative is not fully attainable, but a transformation is and can be really meaningful for both the injured party and the person who committed the harm and more life-affirming for all parties, especially for the survivor of the harm, as an alternative to so-called perpetrator, the person who perpetrated the harm, being disciplined, punished, removed from, you know, ejected from the community, though that can also be a conclusion that a transformative justice circle arrives at. Sometimes people can decide that. I and a lot of other people, I think, looking at the evidence, feel that a restorative justice and or a transformative justice program would be especially in line with Davidson's community values and like the values of our statement of purpose. And that's an area where I think there's a huge amount of potential. 
Yeah. So I think you make an important point about the distinction between transformation and restoration, right? Sometimes the social structure that existed isn't one we want to restore because it was unjust. I use the language of restorative justice because it's what's most frequently used in student conduct circles. But in terms of queer and trans of color circles, transformative justice is absolutely the term that's used and with good reason. You know, I think one of the principles of transformative justice that most appeals to me is the idea that no one is disposable and that none of us should be judged by the worst thing that we have ever done. And so transformative and restorative approaches allow us to acknowledge that harm was done and to bring that person back into the community in ways that are safe for both the person who caused harm, the person or persons who are harmed, and the larger community, rather than just banishing someone straight away and telling them, you know, you've committed this offense, it's serious, we're done with you. Because that's likely to make the person resentful. It's not likely to demonstrate to them why what they did was wrong, or to give them the space to contemplate why they did what they did and what they might want to do differently in terms of their belief system, in terms of the choices that they make. Punishment are systems that allow for disposing of people, whether that means expelling someone from campus or locking someone up in a prison, in a cage, or executing someone in the worst case. And in terms of sexual misconduct, the last thing I'll say about this is that the literature on the way that universities across the U.S. handle sexual misconduct cases shows that no one is ever happy with the result. And so there has to be a better way. And, you know, there's less literature on the effectiveness of restorative or transformative approaches for handling this, but the literature that we do have is very promising and indicates that these approaches lead to not only changes in attitude and everyone involved feeling like the outcome was more positive, but actually educate folks about what sexual assault is and why it's wrong and why you may have done something that you didn't realize was assault, but that in fact was, and why that's still a violation and one that you need to not commit again. Yeah, just one final point, because if you think about what happened when somebody who has committed an act of sexual violence is expelled from a school, they are likely to end up in a different school without having learned anything from the experience. They're more likely to continue causing harm, and that is not helpful for anybody involved, including the survivor of the first sexual violence. So that's something that I think also needs to be considered. Thank you for listening, and remember to look for classes taught by Dr. Horowitz and Dr. Gonzalez in the Gender and Sexuality Studies Department at Davidson and to check out the resources that they recommended posted on our website. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DMP podcast. Check out our website at www.davidsonmicroaggressionsproject.org and follow us on social media. Find us on Instagram at dcmicroaggressions, on Twitter at dmp underscore Davidson, and follow our Facebook page, Davidson Microaggressions Project.